Okay, welcome everybody to the Big Book, Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today is Saturday, the 2nd of July, 2022. My name is Audrey N, and I'm Recovered Compulsive Overeater from County Mead in Ireland, and I'll be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts are Maria F and Veronica C. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either the host or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. Please note that speaker Harlan G will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the questions and answer sessions which follows will not be recorded. We will post the link to the previous week's recording in the chat function. We ask if everyone could make sure that their microphone is on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. I will now turn you over to Harlan. Thanks, Harlan. Thank you so much, Audrey. I really appreciate this. It's so wonderful to be here. It's so fabulous. Um, I'm honored that you're here. I know that it's a holiday weekend for us in America. Uh, I know that it is a holiday. So thank you very much for taking some time from your holiday to join us today at Big Book. Just a couple of things before we get in. When we do get started, we're going to start on page 39, and we're going to start with Fred is a part, Fred is partner, and we're going to be talking about Fred is partner on page 39. But I just wanted to uh, just wish all of you a wonderful holiday weekend, and I'm hoping sincerely that you will continue to set aside a few shekels here and there to get to the OA birthday, which is coming up in January. That is a Los Angeles intergroup uh, fundraiser, but it has morphed over the years into the most powerful and wonderful and welcoming and magical convention that we have. And it is coming up upon us now in January. It's the 13th, the 14th and the 15th of January in Los Angeles. And I'm hoping that you will be able to join us. Uh, I'm hoping we really shatter all expectations in terms of attendance. So I'm hoping that you will kind of make mental note of that. Registration for it obviously has not started yet. That will generally start, I would say, August, September-ish kind of thing. So be looking for that on the Los Angeles OA website. Another couple of things are... Um, that um, we are going to have for anybody in Arizona, we're gonna have a big book weekend in Flagstaff, Arizona coming up the 22nd, 23rd and 24th of um, July. And Flagstaff is about 20 to 30 degrees cooler than it is here on the floor of the desert. So if you're in Arizona or you're in hot weather country, this would give you an opportunity to uh, get into some cool weather. You're at about 9,000 feet and it's just absolutely breathtaking up there. It's like a piece of the Pacific Northwest right here in Arizona. Um, we have been studying chapter three. We're kind of coming to the tail end of chapter three. Chapter three is entitled More About Alcoholism. And chapter three is the last of the chapters of this book that is going to concern itself with step one. And just to kind of review for us, if you're wondering how do the steps correspond to the chapters of the book, chapters, the doctor's opinion, one, two, and three are step one. I know how to say that in Italian, it's passo prima. I learned that from my friend Barbara, passo prima as step one. I don't know how to say the rest of the steps, but I know how to stay, say that. And, um, this, is, this chapter is about the insanity of alcoholism, the, the jaywalker and all the various stories of this chapter that we have studied so far. They let us know a couple of things that are worth remembering. And how do I remember anything in this program? By teaching it to others. Clancy Immisland, bequeathed us with a piece of knowledge that's very, very important for me. He said, I do not get this program by absorbing spiritual information. I get this program by transmitting 
spiritual information. And Clancy is one of my favorite circuit speakers and his podcasts are wonderful. I recommend them all the way, like a 10 out of 10, Clancy Immeslin, Clancy I. He said, we do not get the program by absorbing spiritual information. We get the program by transmitting spiritual information. And so what is it that in chapter three that we've studied so far that are very important to remember? Well, the disease has three properties. It has two characteristics and three properties. The two characteristics of a sufferer of this disease is the mental twist accompanied by the mental blank spot. And then the other one is the physical allergy. So I have a mind that is locked in on that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating certain foods. When I eat uh, a, a chocolate bar, when I eat pizza, whatever that may be, I am going to experience a sudden rush of euphoria in my mind. It's almost a psychotic delusional effect. And that effect will give me respite from any emotions that I may be feeling like fear or anger or frustration or compare and despair. Well, we're gonna find out this morning that very, very definitely happiness and satisfaction are also dangerous emotions to feel. And you know, I have eaten railroad cars full of Twinkies and railroad cars full stuffed to the guttles with baby Ruth bars when things were going well for me. And this morning we're gonna study the story of a man who ate because things were going very, very well for him. Now, the other things that this, that this chapter has taught us so far that are so worth remembering is that abstinence alone does not treat the disease. And that's so important for me to remember because I thought and I believed what everybody was telling me. What were they telling me? My parents told it to me. My teachers told it to me. My rabbis taught it to me. Doctors said it to me. Nurses and the adults in my life, like the parents of my friends, all said the same thing, almost as a choir. They were so in sync that they could have been a choir. And what was it that they were telling me that wasn't true? They'd say, lose weight and you'll feel better and everything will be okay. And I've related these stories many times. When I was six, I tried to, I didn't try, I went on a diet. And when I was seven, I would go on diets. And by the time I was nine years old, I was doctor prescribed heavy duty amphetamines, diet pills. And when I was nine, I lost a lot of weight on these diet pills. And that didn't seem to cure me. It didn't seem to fix me. It only made matters worse because I had no relief from the emotional buildup that I had. I had no respite. Food was my lover. Food was my friend. Food was my life preserver in an ocean of fear and self-doubt and self-loathing and compare and despair and jealousy and all these various emotions pointed me in the direction of Twinkies and Tootsie Rolls and whatever that might be at the time I needed that fix of food. So food did a lot for me and it did a lot for me. And that's how I got addicted to it. My brain locked in on that sense of ease and comfort that came instantly by eating the food. And my brain, because of the mental blank spot, what is the mental blank spot? The mental blank spot is that built-in forgetter the, that does not allow me to recall what the food does to me. It will only allow me to recall what the food does for me. And the food gave me an instant sense of ease and comfort that came over me and it made me feel for about nine seconds like the world was a beautiful 
wonderful place. And it took my 500 pound body or my 600 pound body or my 700 pound body, or it took things when I was in school and just made them right. It just made everything good again. That's what food does for me. And I also learned in this chapter that the disease is permanent, progressive and fatal. Man of 30 was doing some, a great deal of spree drinking and he remained bone dry for 25 years. Did that help him? No. He picked up the, out came his carpet slippers and a bottle and within four years he was dead because the disease is progressive whether I am eating or not. And that's a very important concept for me to teach to other people. And that is the disease is getting worse and worse and worse no matter what my state of abstinence is. So that's very important for me to remember. The disease is permanent. The disease is progressive. The disease is fatal. We get these ideas from a book that was written and published in 1930. And it was written by a man named Richard Peabody. And Richard Peabody wrote a book and the title of it was or is the common sense of drinking. And in the common sense of drinking, Peabody says, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. He also cites that he believed that the disease came and got worse over time. And the disease, that's the progressive nature of the disease. And that is because of the aging factor. That is because as, as we age and as we get away from the ages of about 17 to about 22, 23, and we move away from that maximum digestive furnace that we, that we had, it becomes harder for the body to digest that food. And as our skeletal and muscular systems continue to age, it becomes more difficult to burn the food. And that is the aging process. The more sedentary my lifestyle, the more I ate. And the more I ate, the more sedentary I became. The more sedentary I became, the more I ate because I had aches and pains from the weight I was carrying, which prevented me from exercising, from burning those calories. And even if you burn them and you burn them to the best of your ability, you can't burn them at 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, like you could when you were in your late teens and early 20s. I don't care if you ran from Los Angeles to New York and then from New York and back every morning before breakfast, you're still not going to burn the calories like you could when you were late teens, early 20s. It's just not going to happen. It's just, it's not there. So the disease is permanent. The disease is progressive. And if it's left unchecked, it is fatal. My mother had a horrible death from this disease. She died a um, patient of dialysis. She, she died as an amputee from diabetes and she died in a state of extreme morbid obesity. My mother and father both had ugly, ugly deaths. Deaths were, death was a blessing to both of them. My father had lung cancer because he was a smoker and boy, you couldn't pull those Chesterfields out of his hands. Um, but as I continue to remember that uh, this is the 4th of July weekend, I'm reminded that when my dad would hear the Star Spangled Banner, or he would, he didn't really get the concept of the 4th of July. He had no clue what, what was going on the 4th with the, declara with the Declaration of Independence. He didn't know anything about that. That was way beyond him, way beyond him. But when he would hear the Star Spangled Banner, he would burst into tears and say, my son, that's my favorite song. That's my favorite. He would always say that. That's my favorite song. And he would just say, we're so lucky to be in this country. Whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, whether you're conservative, whether you're liberal, whatever it is you are, you can appreciate someone coming that was born and raised 
10,000 miles away in Europe, in Russia, coming here where Poland and Russia meet right together. That's where he's from. Uh, to come here to this country and appreciate it, it's something I, I hope will bring a smile to your face. But anyway, enough about that. Let's go to page 39 and let's discover something else that this chapter teaches us. And that is that this disease does not care who it afflicts. And we're going to read the real life story of a guy who was a wealthy guy, very successful, and his name was Harry Brick. And Harry Brick, brick just like you build your house with a brick, he was an accountant. Now, not all accountants can plead before the IRS, but he had credentials so that he could plead before the IRS. He was a very special type of CPA, and he made a lot of money. He was very, very successful. He had a family. He wrote a book that appeared in the first edition called A Different Slant. And Harry Brick, also in 1938, while the big book was being printed, or not printed, written, he served on the very first Alcoholic Foundation Board. And he was a real leader. And in 1939, April the 10th, 1939, when the book was printed, or, or it was, yeah, it was printed, some of the money that they used to get the book printed was money that they borrowed from Harry Brick. And they also didn't, couldn't, couldn't pay him back. And he had to sue AA, but eventually he got his money and everything was squared away. But Harry Brick was a successful guy. He did not stay sober, unfortunately. He did not live out his life as a sober guy. But while the first edition was being printed or put together, excuse me, he wrote his story. It's one, it was one of the shortest stories in the first edition, and it's called A Different Slant. But unfortunately, he did get drunk, so his story was yanked from the book, and it does not appear in the second, third, or fourth editions. But his quasi-story with Fred does appear and the bottom line is the lesson that we can learn this morning is timeless, that the disease does not care who it afflicts. You could be from Yale or jail. You could live on Park Avenue or under a park bench. You could be white, black, green, yellow, Jewish, Gentile. It does not matter whether you're gay or straight, no matter who you are or what you are, this disease is an equal opportunity murderer and it doesn't care how many people love you or how many people you love. It will take your life and ransack you unmercifully with no regard whatsoever as to who you are or what you are or where you are. Let's go to page 39 and let's see what we have here. Fred is partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good. He has a fine home, is happily married and the father of promising children of college age. He has so attractive a personality that he makes friends with everyone. If ever there was a successful businessman, it is Fred. To all appearance, he is a stable, well-balanced individual, yet he is alcoholic. So we're going to stop right there for just a second. And sometimes people come in here, often, more often than not, they come in and they make their declaration when they come to their first meeting and they say, you know, my mother was Japanese and we used food for pleasure, for for." greeting people. Then the next person comes in and says, I'm Italian. And the Italians, they use food for everything. And then the next person comes in and says, hey, I'm Jewish. And the next person comes in and say, I'm Lutheran. I'm this, I'm that. And all with the same story. And the story is, I'm such and such, and we used food. And that's why I'm a compulsive overeater. No, it's not. No, I beg to differ. 
all cultures use food, but only one out of 10 people becomes a compulsive overeater as the result of it. If you used liquor or cocaine or whatever it is you used to greet people and to, to sort of meet with people and socialize, I would not have become an alcoholic. I would not have become a drug addict because those things just don't call to me, but food definitely called to me. And the reason that it called to me isn't because of my heritage. It isn't because I'm from Chicago or anything like that at all. It called to me because it produced within my mind a very unnatural reaction that was soothing and wonderful and awesome. It gave me that effect. Did you know that alcoholics and compulsive overeaters almost never become psychotic delusional? Because food addicts and alcoholics, they can go to the food or go to the liquor and produce this unreal reaction to the world. A psychotic delusional person is a person that when we're looking at whatever we're looking at, they see something very, very different. And that happens because their brain cannot handle the horror of what they're seeing. It cannot handle the horrific reality that the brain conceives of when it sees the world and something flips and there's no way of really getting them back. You can't really get them back. But alcoholics, drug addicts, gamblers, and compulsive overeaters almost never become psychotic delusional. Isn't that interesting? But I found it interesting. I have a friend of mine that taught me that. He's a doctor. But anyway, that aside, I thought I'd throw that out there to you. That aside, let's continue. We first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he had gone to recover from a bad case of jitters. It was his first experience of this kind, and he was much ashamed of it. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, wouldn't take step one. He told himself he came to the hospital to rest his nerves. And we see lots of nerve resters around the rooms, don't we? We don't see people a lot of times that really get it until they get it. The doctor intimated strongly that he may be worse than he realized, for a few days, he was depressed about his condition. He made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. In other words, what is he doing? He's going on what we would know as a diet. He's making up his mind to quit drinking altogether. In other words, he's using his unaided willpower to fend off an illness of the mind and an illness of the body. Is that gonna be successful? Let's find out. I doubt it, but let's find out. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so in spite of his character and standing. Um, I've, I have a friend of mine that lives in the Bay Area of California, very, very successful. He's an international accountant. He was a partner in a very, very, very well-known accounting firm. He's a dear soul. I love him to death. He was the best man at my wedding. I was the best man at his wedding. And I love this man. He's about 400 pounds. And one of the things that's very difficult to explain to him is that his unaided willpower, his unaided brain power will not work in the face of the juggernaut that is this disease. That no matter how successful you may be in other areas where liquor is concerned, where food is concerned, the will is amazingly weakened. Does that sound familiar? Because I'm taking it right from page seven of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And on page seven, Bill Wilson says that although I had been certainly foolish and selfish. I had been ill bodily and mentally, bodily the allergy, mentally the twist of the mind. And then he goes on to say that where liquor is concerned, the will is amazingly weakened. So when we have that weakened condition, we cannot apply the same kind of character, the same kind of efficiency that we can apply to other things. There are 148 people here, 147 of them are not named Harlan. 
And if I went around, I know for a fact there is someone on this meeting that has at least one PhD and she is a teacher of special ed. And I know of another person that's a CPA and she's getting a big job in another state. And I know there's nurses on here. And I know that there's mothers on here and there may be some doctors or there may be lawyers. I know of at least one lawyer for sure that's on here, an attorney. We have a lot of very successful people here, but there's one thing I know you can't do Two things I know you can't do, excuse me. There's two things I know you can't do. You cannot control the amount of food you eat once you eat certain foods because of your allergy and you cannot keep from eating those foods because you have an abnormal mind when it comes to these things. I would be astounded if I got to know each and every one of you and the things that you've done, I would be amazed. The remarkable stories that are in this Zoom meeting right now would blow me away. What an amazing, what an amazing adventure it would be to get to know each and every one of you as intimately as that. That would be a trip. I would love to do that. I hope God will afford me that opportunity. And, and there's just so many people here that are just so interesting, but you cannot control the amount you eat once you've started, nor can you keep from eating because of the twist of the mind. You have the allergy and the mind working against you constantly. Let's go to the bottom of 39. It says here, Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic. He would not take step one, much less accept a spiritual remedy for his problem. He would not take step two. Top of 40, we, he to we told him what we knew of alcoholism. What do we know of alcoholism? Well, I've just told it to you. I'm going to tell you again. Alcoholism is a condition of mind and body, the allergy of the body and the twist of the mind. Where did we learn that? We learned that from Dr. William Duncan Silkworth. And the reason that I'm mentioning that is I always want to remind myself, whether you remember it or not, I want to remind myself that without the doctor's opinion, without Dr. Silkworth, there is no program. Bill Wilson, all the things that happened with Ebby, all the things that happened with all the rest, Dr. Bob and all, if we didn't have Dr. Silkworth and we don't have the doctor's opinion, there's no book, there's no program, there's no nothing because we wouldn't know, <clears throat> excuse me, let me just, sorry, okay. We wouldn't know anything about these problems of the allergy of the body and the twist of the mind. But in this chapter, we're studying things like permanent, progressive, and fatal. I have a friend of mine, he lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He says, it's there's the three Ps. And I said, what's the three Ps? He says, permanent, progressive, and fatal. He's so funny. He says, permanent, progressive, and fatal. But he's a card. He's a, he's a character. Top of 40. He was interested and conceded he had some of the symptoms, but he was a long way from admitting he could do nothing about it himself. In other words, he was just a little pregnant. He was just a little pregnant. He was positive that his humiliating experience plus the knowledge he had acquired would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. I'm reminded that when I was about 15 or 16 years old, I made a vow to myself. And the vow that I made to myself was, I'm never going to weigh over 300 pounds. As long as I was in the high twos, 270, 280, 290, I could accept that in myself. But even though I weigh less than that now, but the bottom line is I could live with that at that time. And I've told this story in here before. I went to Mather High School. Mather High School is on the north side of Chicago. And the Mather Rangers, go Mather. 
And I went to Mather and one day I was a junior in high school. It was, we were, uh, it, was, it was in May, right around the end of the school year. Um, and I broke my ankle. I broke my ankle. We were playing soccer in gym and I rolled my ankle and broke it. And my mom took me to the hospital. It was a hot day in Chicago. And Dr. Bernstein was there. Dr. Bernstein was casting me up. And this was in the days when the doctors used to put the cast on you. Today, forget about it. They don't do that. They have nurses or someone else that does that. They don't do that. Anyway, he was putting the cast on me in the emergency room. And he had these little granny glasses. At the end of the 60s, I was a junior in high school in 71. I graduated high school in 72. They had these little granny glasses. And if you've ever seen John Lennon or you've seen the Lovin' Spoonful, some of the, 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 the groups at that time, they all, not all, but they, a lot of them had those granny glasses. And Dr. Bernstein had those granny glasses on. And I can see him doing it right now. He was casting me up. And he looked over the glasses and he yelled at my mother, Virginia, he is 300 and pounds and he is 17 years old. He is not going to live to see 30. What are you going to do about it? And my mother was crying and she was very upset. So there I was at 300 pounds. And then I didn't want to weigh 400 pounds. Then I didn't want to weigh 500 pounds. So you can see where we're going with this. And I remember the day that I went back under 300 pounds was one of the happiest days of my life. I weighed in at about 304, 304. And I said, I got to get under 300. I got to get under 300. And I had lost like so much weight by then. You know, I just lost so much weight. And then two weeks passed. I didn't lose any weight the following week. Zero, nothing. I weigh once a week. And then the next week I was 299. And I have, I don't know that I've ever been that happy in my entire life. I was under 300 pounds for the first time in my adult life. And it was very frustrating. It was quite a journey for me because I remember I had lost like 200 pounds. Now just think of it, I, what I just said, I had lost 200 pounds and I was still a 500 pound man. And I'm still the object of ridicule and people are still making fun of me and people are still giving me unsolicited advice and people are still slapping my ass and slapping my stomach and grabbing my boobs and doing all these various things. And I have to pretend it doesn't bother me. And then I got under 400 pounds and I was so happy. And then I got under 300 pounds. Man, it's a miracle. I didn't just shoot right up to the moon. I don't remember being that happy in my entire life, just about. But anyway, I am reading these words and he's very successful. And he says, self-knowledge would fix it. Why wouldn't he think that? Being as successful as he is and knowing nothing of the disease that Dr. Silkworth teaches us, he looks at his life and he says, I'm well accomplished. I've done things nobody else could do or few people could do. Why can't I control something so simple like my intake of food? Well, let's see where he goes from there because life teaches us lessons. And sometimes the lessons that life teaches us are not bedded in truth. They are not true. You've been very successful. You've got your PhD or you've got your MRS degree or you've got your whatever you've got or your whatever degree or whatever situation you have. And you think to yourself, I've done this and I've done this. I should be able to do something as simple as control the amount of food that goes in my mouth. And yet it is the one thing in life that is so far beyond my capability that I need to turn to the one who has all power. That power is God. And may I find him now because I don't have any other way of doing it. Let's go back to page 40. First full paragraph. We heard no more of Fred for a while. 
one day we were told he was back in the hospital. This time he was quite shaky. He soon indicated he was anxious to see us. So he's only anxious to see them when he has been beaten down by the disease. When he has been beaten down by the disease. And there isn't one person here that got this program before they had been beaten down beyond recognition. Pain isn't the best teacher. It's the only teacher. Nobody is sitting here listening to me, whether you're listening on a podcast or you are listening live on July 2nd, 2022. You're not here because things went well for you. You're not here because you were on a roll and everything was looking like roses and your love life was fabulous and your finances were going great and you loved the way you looked and you said, man, what else? I think I'll join OA. Nobody comes in here under those conditions. Come on, let's get serious. Nobody comes in here on a roll. Who are you kidding? What do you think? I'm I just rolled in here off the off the pumpkin truck. I'm I I was born in the morning, but it wasn't yesterday for the love of God. We come in here when life is pummeling us, when life is beating you beyond recognition. And we also know that OA is never going to be the first stop that you make. We are the last house on the block. And there are people listening to the sound of my voice here that have paid someone to shoot the urine of a pregnant woman up their butt. And I know that there are people listening here that have had somebody that they paid to wire their jaw shut. And I know that there are people here that have gone to fat farms and fat camps and you've gone to treatment and you've had surgeries and you've done this. And you, I'm not knocking any of these things. I'm not saying these things are I'm not judging these things. God knows I'm not qualified. But here's what I do know. They didn't help you. You came here because those things did not work. But there is something about the human ego where we have to try every flipping wrong answer before we are willing to come in here and submit. Many of you came in, went to a few meetings and took 10 to 15 years to come back. Maybe it was that God word that chased you out the door. Maybe it was the food plan. Maybe it was whatever that something you, you just were not quite ready. Well, what happened in the 10 to 15 to 20 years between your first meeting two, maybe five and coming back? Did you got beat up by this disease? You were beat to hell by this disease. Lord only knows that there are people that would have folded their cards in the face of the pain and the suffering that you have endured. We are survivors. We are survivors of ourselves, of a disease that we didn't cause, we can't cure, and we cannot control. You are smart. You are intelligent. You are capable. You are not lazy. You do not lack character. You do not lack discipline. You do not lack the metal that it takes to live your life as an adult. You are not deficient. You have an illness. And nobody in your environment told you that. And nobody in your environment said to you, this is beyond what you can handle. Go get help. I love books, but I'm going to let you in on a secret here. There is one book I don't like. I'm going to tell you the title of it. And all of you know what the book is. It's called The Little Engine That Could. I don't like that book. I never liked that book. I'm not going to like that book. So don't try to convince me to like it. The little engine that could says, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. And he gets the job done. Well, I got to tell you that you cannot. 
do this by yourself on your own unaided willpower. Without help, it is too much for us. May you find him now. Without help, remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. You need God. You need the rest of the people on here. We are here to help you. Are you here this morning or this afternoon, depending on where you are? Do you feel alone? You're not. We love you. We're going to help you. If you're unfamiliar with us, get familiar with us by continuing to come here. We will welcome you with open arms because we are you and you are us. Come to the birthday. Don't be scared away. Oh, I know there's going to be people there and I know you're out of your element and you're going to have to probably travel, but it is the best experience. It's life-changing. The birthday is life-changing. There couldn't be better people running it that understand how to make this where people that have the microphone in their hand have something to say. So many of the conventions I've been to over the years, you get people up there that have jobs within OA, they're the trustee, they're this, and some of them are good and some of them have no message at all. But the birthday goes out of its way to make sure that when you're standing up there, you've got something to say. And we're going to just love on you. Come to the birthday. It'll be life-changing for you. And one of the things that's going to happen to you at the birthday is you're going to meet somebody in the restaurant. You're going to meet somebody at one of the meetings. You're going to meet somebody in the lobby. You're going to meet somebody in the bathroom. You're going to strike up a little conversation. And then six months later, you're going to be somewhere at a retreat or a workshop. And there they are again. And you're going to continue that conversation. And then we're going to have the vision convention, hopefully. And you're going to talk to them again. And that's how you build the friendships. That's how you build your God squad. That's how you build your life within OA so that you feel a part of rather than apart from. Come to the birthday. Come to the birthday. Let's continue on with the work. Oh, my God. I can't believe what time it is. Okay. We heard no more of Fred for a while. One day we were told he was back in the hospital. This time he was quite shaky. He soon indicated he was anxious to see us. The story he told is most instructive for here was a chap absolutely convinced he had to stop drinking, but he had no excuse for drinking who exhibited splendid judgment and determination in all his other concerns, yet was flat on his back, nevertheless, because this disease is bigger than you and your intellect and your discipline and your willpower. It is bigger than all of those things times one thousand million. You, your intellect, your brain, your character will not stand up to the onslaught of this disease. Get that idea out of your head. Get the idea that you're going to find the way to do this yourself out of your head. And the faster you get at that out of your head, the faster you get that out of your soul, the better off we are. Purge that idea from your soul. It's a lie. Let's continue. Let him tell you about it. I'm at the middle of 40. I was much impressed with what you fellas said about alcoholism, and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. Again, there's that demonic ego. I rather appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity which precedes the first drink, 
but I was confident it could not happen to me after what I had learned. Again, self-knowledge was what he was relying on. And what do we learn in Bill's story for the first time? Self-knowledge would not fix it. And Bill Wilson drank again after getting this knowledge from Dr. Silkworth in April of 1933. He is told of the allergy. He is told of the mental twist. And what happens in April of 1934? The frightful day came when I drank once more. My bodily health fell off like a ski jump. And here he is back in the hospital, flat on his butt, because the disease was bigger than Bill. And Bill was very smart. And Bill was very capable. Bill Wilson was nobody's fool. Don't ever think that some of the things you may hear about Bill, oh, he did this and oh, he did that. And he did went here and went. Bill Wilson was a smart, capable man and he could not beat this disease. And I can't beat it either. I cannot beat it. I was therefore, oh wait, uh, I had been usually on. I had been usually successful in licking my other personal problems, and that I would therefore be successful where you men failed. Again, one of the jobs of the ego make me different from everybody else. There's three jobs that the ego has: make me right, make me feel good right now, and make me different from everybody else. And this is him looking at all of us and judging us judging us as I do in my disease, that he was better than us. And he felt that he could control this disease and he's in a hospital flat on his butt. I felt I had every right to be self-confident that it would only be a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. In other words, again, he felt self-knowledge would fix it and it doesn't. And there are many of you of the people that are here today that know more than most nutritionists. You know how many calories is in this, and you know how many calories is in that, and you know how to make this fat free, and you know how to make this gluten free. My God, the knowledge that you've acquired from the freaking libraries in your home of recipes and self-help books and caloric contents, my God, you guys could be nutritionists and people would be wise to come to you because you have the knowledge. But the bottom line is that knowledge alone, everybody here knows that cucumbers have less calories than Hershey bars. Anybody not know that? See me after the meeting. Cucumbers have less calories than Hershey bars. But I ask you a question. When was the last time you got up in the middle of the night and got in the car in your nightgown or your pajamas and went out looking for a cucumber. Does not happen because that Hershey bar does something for you, not to you, for you, that that cucumber will never do. That Hershey bar will take you away. When I was a kid, there was a, there was a, a detergent for dishes called Calgon. And the, they would say, Calgon, take me away. Hershey bar, take me away. If you remember Calgon, you're probably older than 50 because they, Calgon, take me away. And they were so funny. Commercials in the 60s were classic, just classic. The cigarette commercials were classic. I know they're advertising a yucky poo-poo product, you know, cigarettes. I don't smoke and it's yucky poo-poo. I get that. I totally get that. But the bottom line is, is that the commercials were awesome just totally awesome they were and the cigar commercials and the but this calgon calgon take me away so i once i once went into one of my favorite binge places it's in chicago on howard street and i got french fried shrimp there and i said to the 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 guy behind the counter hey fish keg take me away give me a pound of shrimp fish keg take me away and that pound of shrimp with the sugar laden sauce took me away for about nine, 10 seconds. And then I was left with the nightmare of what I was doing, but I couldn't stop. 
Let's continue. In this frame of mind, I went about my business for a time. All was well. I had no trouble refusing drinks and began to wonder if I had not been making too hard work of a simple matter. In other words, his cockiness, his confidence is high. He's had some success. He's not He's not drinking. Everything's going well. Let's see where we go. Because remember, it's permanent. It's what? Progressive and fatal. The progressive part. Put a pin in that because this is what's going to trip him up. One day I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I had been out of town before during this particular dry spell, so there was nothing new about that. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. So let's dispel some myth right here. Don't come in here and say, I ate because I'm a nervous eater and I've got problems. And the old famous line, it's more an alcoholic line, but it, always use it too. If you were married to her, you'd drink too. No, not if you're not an alcoholic, you wouldn't. If you had my mother, if you had my boss, if you had my whatever, you would drink too. No, not if you're not a compulsive overeater, you wouldn't. Not if you don't have this disease, you wouldn't, because this disease makes you do things that are defiant of common sense. It makes you do things that are self-destructive because it's permanent, it's progressive and fatal, and your mind is constantly looking for that effect because the buildup of human emotions is too much for us to bear. And we are looking to relieve, we are looking for relief from that toxic human emotion, whether it's happiness, sadness, jealousy, fear, anger. We are looking to assuage the pain of these emotions. And so in search of relief, we find the food and know that it will help us. And our mental blank spot makes it impossible to recall what the food does to us. We can only remember what the food does for us. Let's continue. We've got a couple of minutes left. Let's use them wisely. My business came off well. I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. I went to my hotel room and leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner and go back to the hospital. No, he doesn't say that. That was all, nothing more. So the mental twist is where it started. And on page 23 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, we learn that the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind. Things were going well. He was happy. Partners happy. Everybody's happy. All the dogs and cats are happy. All the people of the world are happy. Happy days are here again. Yet, he wants a cocktail. A guy would be crazy, wouldn't he? Considering he's already been hospitalized a couple of times for his drinking. Let's continue. I ordered a cocktail and my meal. Mental twist makes him seek out relief from those emotions. Not catastrophe, but good emotions. Then I ordered another cocktail. What's making him order the second cocktail? the physical allergy. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed. He's got the alcohol in him now and he cannot, he's not thinking about anything else. When he went on that walk, you can bet your life that the thought of that drink was all he was really thinking about. He wasn't thinking about anything else. I remember, <clears throat> oh, we've, so I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty next morning. 
I had a shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York and of finding a friendly taxi cab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with unbearable mental and physical suffering. Again, this disease does not care who it affects. Some of you that are listening live in very nice places. Some of you that are listening, not so nice. The disease is an equal opportunity murderer. Some of you have families that love you very much and you love them. The disease doesn't care. Some of you do not have families and you live alone. The disease doesn't care. Not only does this disease want you dead, but it wants you crying your eyes out from the pain and humiliation of what this disease does to you on the way to killing you. And the unbearable mental and physical suffering is something that each and every one of us has experienced many times. As beautiful as some of you may look on the outside, and Tammy, you're my favorite, definitely, when it comes to that. The bottom line is, every one of you have cried into the night through tears in your eyes at a God that you didn't think would help you. And you said to that God, I don't know how to live this way anymore. Please help me. And we didn't make the effort. We didn't do the work necessary. I have a friend that lives in New Jersey. She's been suffering from COVID lately. She's just getting back on her feet. She's a wonderful messenger of this program. She's just a wonderful, wonderful example of what this program can do. And she says, I'm sorry you didn't get the results from the work you didn't do. I'm sorry you didn't get the results from the work that you didn't do. So we prayed to God like a genie in the bottle. And now that we're walking to God and we're making the effort and we're doing the work, we see that when we walk to God, he runs to us. We see promise. We see hope. We see recovery. Friday, on a Vision for You phone meetings, we read the words, I saw, I felt, I believed. They're on page 12 of Bill's story. I saw, I felt, I believed. What did Bill see? He saw recovery in Ebby for the first time. He had been hospitalized twice for his alcoholism, and he had seen heavy drinkers and alcoholics not drinking, but he had never seen what recovery looks like. And Ebby delivered the message to Bill that not only was there a solution, but he became at that moment the living embodiment of recovery. I saw recovery. I felt hope. I believe. What did he believe? He believed that if he did the work necessary, that God would help him to throw off the yoke, the chains of his alcoholism. I saw, I, came, I felt, I believed. For today, see, feel, and believe. Are you struggling? Are you on the struggle bus? Are things a little tough right now? You're, maybe you're eating, maybe you're doing some eating, or you're thinking about eating. Reach out to one of us. We're here. Do the work necessary. Stop trying to control this on your own. Stop trying to fend off the hurricane, the tornado, the cyclone of this disease on your unaided willpower. We will love you. And the disease, we're going to get more into it next week. We're going to get more into this next week. But we're going to see where this disease is going to make him hate himself, doubt himself, 
And we're going to see how the recovery is going to work on those things. See, it's not just a disease of food and weight. It's a disease of being beautiful and feeling ugly. The disease of being which somebody's unmuted, Maria, uh, somebody. Uh, it's a disease of being a child of God created in, 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 in that image and looking at yourself and loathing yourself. It's a disease that infects every aspect of your life negatively. It will not let you live. It will not let you breathe. It will not let you be free. We're going to hear a lot this weekend about freedom, freedom, freedom. How free do you want to be? How free do you want to be? This disease is a form of horrible slavery and degradation. This disease is a horrible, horrible affliction. How free do you want to be? What are you willing to do? When are you willing to do it? When are you willing to cast off the idea of what you're not willing to do or what you won't do? When you tell yourself, I won't, I can't, I'm not, you're, 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 that's the music that the disease wants to hear. Master Yoda from Star Wars was a wonderful sponsor. He sponsored a lot of people. And he said, Master Yoda says, there is no try, either do or do not. And Master Yoda was a wonderful sponsor. Okay, before I throw it back to Nancy, Maria, Sue L, or whomever, I don't, maybe Veronica, I was told today, I don't know. What we're going to do is ask you for a couple of things. First of all, no math of any kind, no math, and no, please no food. And every time I say no food questions, we get a minimum of eight of them. 